The Bob Murphy Show, episode 217. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today I am going to be critiquing the recently released, I think it was in August, TED Talk from Stephanie Kelton. So she is one of the leading MMT theorists. She had formerly worked as an advisor to the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign. And then she's more recently the author of The Deficit Myth. And I have reviewed that for the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics. So what I'm going to do is I will link, so this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 217. I'll link to my review of her book. That's where you should go to see my point-by-point takedown. Whereas what I'm going to do for this episode right now that you're about to listen to is I'll just go through and grab excerpts from her TED talk and then just respond piecemeal. So I'm not giving like the sort of comprehensive overarching critique of MMT from my point of view. In this particular episode, though, you'll basically get most of my views as they'll come through in response to her particular points. Also, I'll link to, uh, I had Warren Mosler on the show here, and then I afterwards did a, a whole episode sort of responding to him. Because as you folks know, I'm very pleasant and easygoing during the interview process itself. So I, did, I didn't want to debate Warren face-to-face, although we did do that. And I'll link to that too. I'm just jotting some notes here. I think we were at, where were we, Columbia? I'm getting mixed up now as to where we, we actually had that debate. It was somewhere around New York City. Okay, so I'll link to that as well. So now let's dive right into Stephanie Kelton's TED Talk, which is titled The Big Myth of Government Deficits. COVID broke everything. It put a spotlight on the many deficits in our economy, in employment, education, healthcare, housing, and it showed how inequality made it all worse. Here in the U.S. and around the world, governments did some extraordinary things. They sent money to people directly to help them buy food and pay rent. They provided free COVID testing and expanded healthcare to cover more of the population. They gave money to businesses to help keep them afloat while much of the economy was temporarily shut down. They offered debt relief to millions of people who borrowed money to go to college. They did all of this and more without raising taxes or having a prolonged battle over the usual question of how to pay for it. To me, this was exciting. And I'm an economist, so I don't say that a lot. Okay, so I let it run up through her laugh line, and she did get a decent chuckle from the crowd on that one. And that's partly why Stephanie Kelton is so dangerous 
in my mind. Because right? I think MMT is a disastrous perspective to be selling to the public, given the current context of the political environment and the state of economic knowledge. So when Stephanie Kelton comes along and is very uh, glib and pleasant personally, then that makes it all the more dangerous because it's going to more easily be picked up by the average Joe. So as far as the content of what you just said there, yeah, it's true that when there's an ostensible emergency that normal constraints go out the window, but that doesn't mean they no longer exist, right? Just like if, uh, you know, you're a family, you know, a household and kid gets hit by a car and you rush to the hospital and you don't worry about, you know, paying parking tickets or, or speeding tickets, I should say. And if the breadwinner in the family was supposed to go to work right then, you don't worry about that because, oh my gosh, I got to get the kid to the hospital. That even though you, you don't normally fret over finances and things like that, that exact moment, that doesn't mean, therefore, everything is costless. And gee, why don't we just continue for every day to act without constraint, without worrying about how we're going to pay for stuff. Gee, shouldn't we go work some? Let's, let's not worry about that. I mean, after all, when there was an emergency, we didn't think like that. All right, so that's really, you know, what Stephanie Kelton is pointing to is, ah, the one silver lining of that COVID emergency was the government ran trillions of dollars in red ink without worrying how we're going to pay for this stuff. All right, so again, there are analogs of that type of reckless abandon during an emergency, even among private households, but it doesn't therefore mean it's silly to, even when things settle down, calmly and rationally deliberate about the finances. All right, let's get back to Stephanie Kelton. Can we build affordable housing and fix crumbling infrastructure? Can we expand Medicare to include dental, vision, and hearing? Can we tackle our climate crisis? As Congress debates these questions, everyone is back to asking, how will you pay for it? It's the wrong question. In fact, the right questions don't involve money at all. Instead of worrying about where the financing will come from, we should be asking, are these things worth doing? And do we have the real resources, the people, the equipment, the raw materials and the technology to do them? Will they make society better off? And do we have the political will to act? All right, so I debated with myself and I simultaneously won and lost the debate. Always happens. Or I guess it could have been a draw. I debated with myself as to how to tackle this particular thing. So let me try it this way. So rather than me just restating what I've said in print several times now in my critiques of MMT, let me try it this way. I'll say something new here. There's a sense in which all Stephanie Kelton and the other MMTers are doing is rediscovering classical economics, right? Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, one way of summarizing at least one of his major points was to say the wealth of nations does not consist of money, right? And, th and that was one way of seeing the problems with mercantilism and understanding the benefits of free trade, right? That what makes a country wealthy is having farmland and cattle and 
skilled craftsmen and a fleet of ships and coal reserves. That's what makes a country wealthy, not having piles of coins that you accumulated because of past trade surpluses, right? And so the way a finance minister or other advisors to the king should give advice in terms of promoting the genuine accumulation of wealth in the economy would be to encourage policies that promote saving and investment or the acquisition of more skills by the workers. That's the way you would make the economy richer in real terms, right? So that's not a term that Smith would have used, but that's what he was getting at, right? So just doubling the quantity of coins in a nation doesn't make everybody even on average twice as wealthy, whereas doubling the amount of arable farmland or doubling the amount of coal that's in the mines and so forth, that really does increase the wealth of the nation and makes the people at least on average richer, right? So that's the idea. Now, incidentally, let me just do a quick little caveat or tangent, I guess. I actually think that that's not quite right now, believe it or not, especially if you're using commodity money, right? So I actually now I've come sort of full circle in my views and I think a lot of the standard right-wing libertarian free market economists critique of old school mercantilism goes a little bit too far when it says that there's no sense in which a trade surplus is better than a trade deficit. But put that aside. All right. I don't want to get too far afield here. That's the basic insight of Adam Smith and the other classical economists. In their models, they weren't thinking of money as a as a good like everything else, right? They were sort of stepping back and just looking at aggregate production and consumption and then, you know, in the, in the distribution of output among the different economic classes and money was not an integral part of the analysis, right? It, I would argue it wasn't until Mises and his theory of what's called in the translation theory of money and credit that you took the insights of microeconomics and applied them the same framework to what is normally called macroeconomics, all right? So there's a sense in which all Kelton and the MMT people are doing is rediscovering that old classical wisdom. And they're saying, oh, really, when you think about it and step back, the thing that makes the country wealthy in this, but they're just narrowly focusing on government spending or government programs more generally is not you know, the flow of dollars per se, if we're talking about the U.S., it's about whether we have, you know, the real resources needed to fund all these programs. That's really the issue. And my point is that's that's always been the issue, right? There's nothing magical about money. If you're looking at a regular economy and all the money flowing around and whatnot, it's not, or, or put, let me put it this way. This is the way to do it. What social function do the accountants serve in a market economy? What's the point of having profit and loss accounting and to ask for, for each corporation or each business, I should say, might not be a corporation, for each, for each firm to ask, are we profitable? Can we afford this? Like, oh, there's this investment project, but can we afford it? Or for households to say, ah, yes, it would be nice to go on this vacation, but can we afford it? Right? What does that mean? It's just a way to 
apportion society's scarce resources in a rational way. All right. And this is the whole crux of the calculation, the socialist calculation argument that Mises started and Hayek joined with others. But that's what Mises was arguing, that under socialism, the central planners have no way of knowing whether they're using society's resources, scarce resources, in an efficient manner. So they can go ahead and crank out a bunch of cars and tanks and houses and so forth from the available resources, but they have no way of knowing, did we make good use of those resources? And that's what you need market prices for. So if you just think about it, what, what does it mean when a firm is profitable? Well, it means that the money it's spent on the inputs that went into the factory on the left side, moving from left to right, all these inputs, you know, worker hours, steel, coal, electricity, rubber, glass, all these inputs flow into the factory on the left side. They bounce around, whatever, steam comes out and so forth. And then on the right side comes finished goods for consumers. And we have to know, is that good or not from a social point of view? Is that a good use of those resources? And so in a market economy with private property and money, what happens is the owner or owners of that firm, that factory, have to pay money for those inputs and then they sell the outputs for money. And so if they're profitable, that means the amount of money they're getting from their own customers on the outputs is more than the money they spend on the inputs. And now if you pull back your view and see that that factory is just in a sea of other potential competing enterprises or processes for transforming inputs into outputs that are all controlled by their own decentralized decision makers, and they're all entering the factor markets or the input markets with money to bid those scarce inputs away from other potential uses, and then they enter the output markets and sell you know, the, the finished goods and services to the consumers for money. What Mises is pointing out is to be profitable just means that you are transforming some portion of that flow of inputs into outputs in a way that the consumers approve of. And what do we mean? Well, in the sense that they're spending more money on the stuff you're producing than you have to spend in money to siphon away some of those resources that now can't go into other possible lines. Right. And so the reason, for example, like let's I use this example a lot. If someone's building an apartment building, they could take a bunch of gold and coat the interior surfaces, right? So that when you go rent an, a unit in that apartment building, like your countertop is is covered in gold. Or your, you know, the the door, the the handle to your fridge is just gold. Right? That would be awesome if it were free. But why wouldn't they do that in practice? Well, it's not because the consumers wouldn't want it. Like I said, that'd be awesome. You imagine how cool you'd be if your apartment had gold like that in it? You would pay more in rent each month for an apartment that had gold in it like that than for an apartment that didn't. But still, nobody builds apartments like that, at least not in a genuine market. Maybe they would if there's some weird government policies involved. And why not? Because it wouldn't be profitable. You'd say, oh, you would lose money doing that. And so what do you mean when you say that? You're Technically, what you mean is the amount that the revenue would go up to the builder who made such a decision 
would not be as big a, an increment as the amount by which the cost would go up. And so on the margin, using gold just to decorate the interior of an apartment, except in extraordinary circumstances, like where, you know, the prince from some Middle Eastern country is coming to visit or something, it wouldn't be profitable on the margin. It would increase marginal cost more than it would increase marginal revenue. And so that's why you wouldn't do it. Now, does that mean nobody in the economy is using gold? That, oh, nobody would use gold. It's too expensive. No, of course not. Jewelers are still using gold, right? You'd say, oh, I could make this necklace out of silver or I could make it out of gold. And if I make it out of gold, people will like it more and they'll pay more for it. But then I'll have to spend more on the inputs because the raw gold is more expensive than the raw silver needed to fashion this necklace. But in that case, it checks out. If you make this, this particular necklace out of gold rather than silver, then the increase in the marginal revenue is higher than the increase in the marginal cost. And so it works out. So that's why you go ahead and do it. It's profitable. If you think about it, it must be profitable for some enterprises to be using gold because if nobody were using it, its price would keep falling, right? So at any given time, if certain inputs are being used at all, then that means at least some enterprises find them affordable and profitable to do so. And the prices that are being paid for those inputs, in a sense, are the barrier that keeps other people's hands off them. So the price is the way that the entrepreneurs who end up using particular inputs, at least in equilibrium, that's what they have to do in order to reserve their right to use it. Obviously, I'm speaking loosely here, folks. I'm, just, I'm trying to give the intuition of Mises' point. Okay, so that's the role that money and prices serve in a market economy. Ultimately, yeah, it's always the question of which things should be done. And, you know, do we have enough resources as a society in order to fund all these projects and so forth? Okay, is this a good use of society's scarce resources? So again, Stephanie Kelton's making it sound like, oh, there's this special thing when it comes to government projects whereby, you know, the issue isn't funding. The issue is we need to know, does it make sense to do this or not? All right. Another way of putting all this is just to say that the government, when it enjoys this special privilege, that's just a happenstance. There's nothing intrinsic to government activity per se. Likewise, everything that Stephanie Kelton's going to say about government, if we allowed for the Fed to just print money anytime the Murphy household ran a deficit, then everything she says about the federal government would also apply to the Murphy household. All right. And this is a little technical point here, and then I'll, I'll return to the TED Talk. I know, I absolutely know, because I've, I've seen them argue, the MMT people are going to say, no, no, the difference is, Murphy, the federal government really does operate this way, and your household doesn't. That's all we're saying. We're not saying it's good or bad. We're just saying, and, okay, number one, it's not correct. All right, and I'm not going to get into it now, but you can read my QJE article if, you, if you're curious. The MMT people are not right when they say, oh, in the real world, if Congress wants fighter jets, 
they just tell the Fed to increase the checking account balance in Northrop Grumman's account. And then they send them the, that's not true. It's, it's legally, it's not true. It, and it just, it's not what happens in actual, the actual mechanics of it. Okay. And I don't dwell on that though, because they could, like Congress could just pass a law saying that the Fed is obligated now to monetize the Treasury's deficit spending, right? So there's nothing physically stopping them from doing that. I'm just saying it happens not to be true right now. So when they continually hide behind the claim that, oh, we're not saying this is good or bad. This, these aren't normative claims. These are just positive description of how the world works. They're not right. It's, no, that's not actually how the world works. That's how the world works in a simplified model of the government and central bank where you put them into what's called a consolidated balance sheet if you want to do that. But again, by the same token, you could put the Murphy household in the Federal Reserve into a consolidated balance sheet. All right, if we're just making stuff up, so there, there's that element. But again, if they then say, well, come on, it would just take, take a little changing of the statutes or whatever, then they could do it. And, and I agree, they, they could do that. And also in practice, the Federal Reserve really isn't independent completely from the federal government. But by the same token, like I said, they could just say any Murphy deficit gets monetized. There's nothing in the laws of physics preventing them from doing that. Okay, so again, whether we're talking in theory or in practice, the MMT description, there's nothing special about the government. And I, the reason I stress that is because all of the apparent benefits of this newfound perspective fall away once you realize, yeah, you could do this with anything. Hey, folks, just a quick note. If you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more, then go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. I thank you in advance. All right, let's return to Kelton. It reminds us that we're no longer on a gold standard. So finding the money to pay for the things we need is never an issue for countries like the U.S. or the U.K. If we're going to fix what's broken in our economy, we have to fix the way we think about the limits on government spending. Let me give you an example of the kind of broken gold standard thinking that still permeates our discourse. Okay, so here, I don't want to dwell too long on this particular clip. Let me just mention one thing. I initially, when I was talking about MMT, would say, you know, that it's modern monetary theory to get away from old gold standard thinking. And I had some MMT people bite my head off and they say, no, 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 you idiot. And yes, they called me idiot or equivalent terms. The modern there, that, that refers to like the modern nation state and its ability to issue currency, you know, to be a sovereign currency issuer in a particular realm that has nothing to do with the gold standard, right? So MMT, in other words, was true for thousands of years or at least hundreds of years. It, you know, it's as old at least as the modern nation state. And so that's not what the modern means. But, you know, in, in my defense, again, you, you just heard how the way Kelton presented it one would naturally think when she's contrasting MMT, modern monetary theory, with gold standard thinking that it's referring to fiat currency. And so just, but be careful with that. Like I said, because then the MMT purists will accuse you of not knowing what you're talking about if you say the modern and MMT refers to post-gold standard uh, institutional arrangements. 
All right, back to Kelton's talk. Back in 1983, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Margaret Thatcher, said these words. If the state wishes to spend more, it can do so only by borrowing your savings or by taxing you more. And it is no good thinking that someone else will pay. That someone else is you. There is no such thing as public money. There is only taxpayers' money. Maybe you've heard the contemporary version of Thatcher's dictum, there is no magic money tree. Okay, so admittedly, Margaret Thatcher's taxonomy there of possible sources of government funding left out inflation, all right? But she shouldn't have done that. I will say, though, it's funny how Stephanie Kelton, not in so many words, but is kind of sort of agreeing that, yeah, the MMT people are saying there is a magic money tree. Namely, it's the central bank, at least in a country where they have a sovereign currency in her terminology, or they're the, the sovereign issuer. So, again, this is a thing. When I was a young lad growing up, being steeped in free market libertarian economics, it was standard that people would say there's three ways the government can pay for something, either through taxing, borrowing, or printing, you know, inflation. And so the fact that the MMT people keep coming back to this as if nobody knows this, you know, yeah, I guess Margaret Thatcher, you get the point Margaret Thatcher was, was trying to put across there. And yeah, she didn't do it technically in a sound manner, but the idea that the MMT, it took the MMT people to step to the plate and let us know that, hey, don't you know if the government wants to pay for something, it can just print money? And, uh, you know, Rothbard's like, oh, ah, I didn't know that. <laughs> All right, back to Kelton. And by the way, in case it's not clear, I'm not going through this thing necessarily second by second, so I'm, I'm skipping ahead at times. Unfortunately, deficits have gotten a bad rap they're almost always seen in a negative light. And I would like to change that. When we hear the word deficit, we probably think of a deficiency or shortfall. Okay, a deficit always sounds ominous. So when we hear that the federal government just ran a $3 trillion budget deficit, it can sound worrying and it can even anger people. But there's another way to think about government deficits. Just as a six becomes a nine when we view it from a different angle, a government deficit becomes a financial surplus when we look at it from another perspective. A deficit hawk might look at this picture and see nothing but a sea of worrying red ink. That's not how I look at it. Here's what I see. I see what's happening on the other side of the government's ledger. When the government spends more than it taxes away from us, it makes a financial contribution to some other part of the economy. Their red ink is our black ink. Okay, and that's one of the central propositions in the MMT literature is to say that a government budget deficit is equal to net private saving right, that loosely speaking, the private sector, if we want to save on net, if we want to accumulate financial assets on net, how can we do that, right? Like, like I say, I 
save money. You know, so now I have an asset that I have an IOU of a thousand dollars. Jim owes me a thousand dollars, so I've saved and accumulated. Now I have this extra thousand dollars in financial wealth. Oh wait, but now Jim has that debit, right? So I'm a thousand dollars wealthier financially, but now Jim has this liability, so he's a thousand dollars poor. So that's the what they're what they're getting at. And so they're saying, see, if you sum it up across all individuals in the private sector, it all washes out. On net, the private sector can't owe itself money. So there's no financial assets that on net can be worth anything. And then, oh, the one thing that you can do is uh, what if we have treasury securities, right? So if if people in the private sector are owed money by Uncle Sam, and now that trick doesn't work, right? Because we were talking about the private sector. Uncle Sam's not in the private sector. And so to the extent that the private sector accumulates treasury securities, right, promises to pay dollars in the future coming from the U.S. Treasury, well, now the private sector on net has financial wealth exactly in that amount. And if the federal government runs a budget deficit, meaning they issue more bonds to borrow more money to pay for current spending, now the private sector, the level of bonds issued by Uncle Sam that it holds goes up. And so that's in addition to net financial wealth. And so that corresponds to net private saving and during that time period. All right, so that's the logic. That's what they're thinking of. So number one, even on its own terms, that, I don't think that's correct. And I don't want to get too deep into it. It's something I'm working on. I might even try to do a formal journal article on this. But the claim, and, and this is not unique to the MMT camp. This guy's been emailing with me for over a year at this point, showing me, I'm not going to use his name because I didn't get permission. I don't know if he wants me to. But digging up stuff from mainstream economists and public finance accounting types who argue that matter of fact. Like, oh yeah, financial assets just represent claims on other parties. And so on that, they have to, you know, sum up to zero for the economy as a whole. And so in that framework, then the MMT people are right that therefore, if you just draw a line between the private sector and the federal government, then the only way the private sector can accumulate net financial wealth is through a higher government debt. So like I say, I actually don't think that's correct. I think even if you just had the private sector, if you hit Ancapistan, there is a sense in which everybody could accumulate net financial assets if they engaged in saving, not just in terms of, oh, we have more tractors and so on. And so that's the sense in which we're wealthier because of real capital accumulation. But no, even in just financial assets. And, and the, the reason is, I'll be real fast with this because it's kind of a technical point, that there's a reason we have corporations. Like, like why do we organize corporations to exist and own physical assets? And then we have shareholders who own the shares of stock, right? Why, why do we have that arrangement institutionally? Why do the shareholders not directly own all the factories and inventory and so on for the big corporation? Why do they instead own shares of stock directly? And then it's the corporation that's the legal entity that owns that stuff. And, you know, some agorist types will say, oh, it's because of the crazy government rules and whatever. Okay, maybe. But I think even in a genuine free market, there would be some analog of publicly held companies where investors just own shares of stock 
And then there's this legal entity that is the middleman or middle thing. Okay. So why is that? Well, it must be there's a sense in which the combined value in monetary terms of those assets held by the corporation is bigger when it's owned by the corporation and the shareholders indirectly own it than if the shareholders just directly owned all the physical items, right? Otherwise, there'd be no point in organizing it in the corporate structure. And so if you just think through the implications of that, that shows you the sense in which it's not just a wash and you can have in a given period an increase in the financial wealth of a community above and beyond just what went up in terms of the, you know, the amount of tractor or the, you know, the, you're not just adding up the value of all the physical items, the physical capital goods, right? There's something that's gained in addition when you add in financial markets and you add in the existence of shares of corporate stock. Okay. So there you go. So I'm saying even on its own terms, but I, I grant you that's kind of a technical aside, right? Let's come back to, and we'll close this episode on this point. The main problem with that argument, with that MMT argument, that government budget deficits reflect private sector surpluses and therefore turn that frown upside down. Okay, so my usual trick with the MMT arguments from accounting is to say there's nothing special about the government. You could put anything else in there, right? Murphy household deficits equal rest of the world minus Murphy surpluses. So... Do you guys all feel wealthier when I run deficits? Is that a good thing for you? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but is that really the way to think about stuff? And what's so special about it? Now, here's what's interesting. There's actually a sense in which the one entity that you really are not better off when it owes you money is the federal government, at least if we're talking about the private sector as a whole. All right, so let's do it this way. There is a sense in which if let's not pick Murphy because that's you know I'm just a I'm just one man. What can I do? But let's pick um, like Google stock, okay? Or let's say Exxon Mobil, okay? So if the private sector minus Exxon Mobil accumulates bonds issued by Exxon Mobil, certain individuals in the private sector are wealthier. They have more financial wealth, right? You, they hold up these bonds that Exxon issued. And they say, yep, see, it says the owner of this thing, of this bond, you know, the, the owner um, will be paid $1,000 by ExxonMobil five years from now. That's what this bond says. And so this is part of my financial wealth. Now you can say, if you're just looking at the whole world minus ExxonMobil, is it true to say they are that much wealthier because of the existence of that bond? And I would say yes. If you're going to talk like that, if that's the framework we're going to use, then yes. Because that individual is, and it's not that anybody else in the economy is poorer because of that. Now you'd say, wait a minute, but how's ExxonMobil going to get the $1,000 to pay that person? Like, aren't they going to have to go take it from somebody else to give it to, to the bondholder? And so really, isn't that just a wash? And you say, well, yes, but so long as it's voluntary, the people in the future who give their money, their dollars to ExxonMobil, which it then will use to pay the bondholders, those people are benefiting, right? When they go buy the refined product, if, you know, if ExxonMobil's refining oil into gasoline and selling it to the retailers, you know, whatever organization that is that's directly handing dollars over to ExxonMobil, it's not doing it under duress. 
they're benefiting from that operation, right? So they're not made poorer by the fact that ExxonMobil is going to have to make a payment down the road, okay? So you could make the argument, I'm saying, that the mere fact that an institution in the private sector owes money to people does not imply a corresponding impoverishment to somebody else outside that entity, right? Now, when it comes to the federal government, though, that argument doesn't work. Uncle Sam owes me $1,000, right? Because I, I lent it money and it says the owner of this treasury security gets $1,000 five years from now, okay? I'm disregarding interest payments. So how is the treasury going to get that money? Well, it's not going to provide valuable goods and services voluntarily to people who then pay for them. And that's a, no, it just says to people, give me money or you go to jail. And so they hand over their money. So unlike the case with ExxonMobil, when it comes to the treasury to say the treasury owes on net money to the private sector, that doesn't make the private sector wealthier in any sense. All right, let me just say that argument again in a more brief fashion from the top, though, just make sure you get it. If we're dividing the world up into ExxonMobil has a, you know, a line around it, and then there's the rest of the world, and we know that ExxonMobil owes money to people, and we want to ask, does that mean the rest of the world, if we're excluding ExxonMobil from the consideration, is wealthier because of that debt? There's a sense in which, yes, that to the extent that ExxonMobil has to get the money to pay that future you know, financing through voluntary means, then the people who supply the dollars that are going to be used to pay the bondholders are not being impoverished because of that. They're being enticed to give up their dollars because of the services and goods that Exxon provides them. In contrast, when you take out ExxonMobil and put the U.S. Treasury into the middle of that circle, and now you're viewing the world as U.S. Treasury in one box or circle and the rest of the world outside of it, and you say the fact that the Treasury, U.S. Treasury, owes dollar payments in the future to some recipients inside the set of all earthlings not consisting of the U.S. Treasury, and you say, does that make everybody else richer in the aggregate. And you say, no, it doesn't. Because where the treasury is going to get that money is by taking it through force. Okay. Or another method is to run the printing press. And there, does that make us wealthier? And I would say, no, not in real terms. It doesn't. That's just going to raise prices in general. All right. So if you're going to look at it in terms of a sophisticated analysis, clearly the treasury owing people money doesn't make those people wealthier on aggregate, in the aggregate, right? Certain individuals could be made wealthier because the government taxes their neighbors to give them money, sure, but then their neighbors are poor. So to the extent that the government's getting money to pay debts through taxation, that's clearly not making the private sector any better off, and that's a fundamental difference between the government owing people money and a private corporation into the extent that they just pay for it by running the printing press. Yeah, in nominal terms, that works. But in real terms, it doesn't, at least if price inflation rises. Okay, so I guess the last hole to plug here is the, the idea of, well, what if price inflation doesn't go up? So I talk about it more in my print arguments or critiques against MMT. But here, let me just close by saying, 
I simply disagree economically as an Austrian economist with the MMT framework that you can have persistent underemployment of real resources, including labor, and that it takes the government to come in and run the printing press in order to fix that. That there is something wrong with the economy besides the insufficient monetary inflation coming from the authorities if you were stuck in such a quagmire. All right. Even if you are stuck in the quagmire because of other government policies, I disagree that running the printing press is even like a second best solution, generally speaking. But certainly if you have on the table not only, oh, the option of running the printing press or getting rid of the government policies that are causing the economy to be mired in depression, well then to say, oh, so running the printing press is a good idea to restore full employment. No, that's crazy. Get rid, change the other policy. In other words, we're changing policy in order to solve the problem of there being an underutilization of resources, then get rid of the things that are prevent mar preventing market clearing. Don't just have the government run huge budget deficits and then finance them through monetary inflation. Okay, but again, I will link to some of my other articles on that stuff. Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 217. All right, so I'll wrap this up here in some the MMT philosophy or perspective doesn't actually tell us anything new. Any decent economist has always known that the government can physically print or electronically at this point, print money. And there's, there's nothing in the laws of physics. That's why I said that preventing it from doing so. And at least since 1971, in the United States, the constraints on monetary inflation are much lower than they used to be under the gold standard. Nonetheless, the government does not create real resources by spending money. It has always been the case that the ultimate constraint on what society can produce are the real resources and technological recipes at its disposal. And the reason we have decentralized private property, markets, money prices is to help solve this problem. All right, so that's why we have money. If you ask, why, why do we... Why do the MMT people think we don't just have everybody print money when they want to spend? Well, you know, why doesn't everyone just get their own printing press? And you can realize the chaos that would ensue. We would lose the ability to calculate money prices. We just revert to a state of barter. And that's why we wouldn't want to do that. That'd be terrible. And then you say, okay, so now you can see why having the government get away with this is also a bad idea. Just not as bad as letting everybody do it. Now, Again, the MMT people are going to say, oh, oh, oh you're, you're condemning the current system. We're not taking a stand one way. We're just saying, no, they're being coy. Of course, they like the current system. That's why they want to be able to pay for the Green New Deal and health care for all and so forth, right, with it. They wouldn't want to have their hands tied by the arbitrary, barbarous relic of the gold standard. Okay, now I really will stop. Thanks for your attention, everybody, and I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.